see you guys. And uh, yes, give them a hard time. I'm all about mocking and ridicule. <laughs> For people that miss a free Roots Chris launch on a Tuesday, boo to them. No, we're glad to see you here and hope you enjoyed the lunch. It's really good today. Um, it's good every day. This is what this is, but I like it. So last week, we looked at the priests, the priestly garments that were being made. Remember, Israel is camped at the base of Mount Sinai. The entire mountain is engulfed in flame and thunder and smoke and lightning, and, and it's just ridiculous. And during this time, Moses is up on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. He's getting these instructions. So this is what God's telling him from the mountain. And he's getting the instructions for how Israel as a people are going to move around and ultimately move into the Holy Land with the Holy God in the midst. And they're basically getting instructions for how to make Mount Sinai portable because they can't take the mountain with them. When they leave, they're gone. And God wants to come down from the mountain and dwell in their midst, but God can't dwell in the midst of a sinful people uh, without his holiness consuming them. So he is, he is giving Moses the, the pattern. He says multiple times, uh, build everything according to the pattern I'm showing you. He's teaching him, he's showing him, he's instructing him how God is going to basically pitch his, or pitch his tents with Israel and, and dwell among them. And literally, that dwell word is used to describe pitching one's tent. And so that's what God's doing in this section. So then he talked about after the building of the things and, and preparing the tabernacle, then the priests who would serve him in the tabernacle and who would minister before him. We saw last week the priest, the high priest especially, was to be like the representative of the heavenly man. The one who would go before uh, God himself into the Holy of Holies and represent the people and vice versa. Taking them on his shoulders literally and bearing them uh, near his heart literally as well through the use of the stones and the ephod and the turbans and all of the things last week. So now, now after the office of priest has been described, now the actual priests, the people who are going to fill that office are going to be told what they have to do or Moses will be told what they have to do. <clears throat> so verse 20, or chapter 29, verse 1, God says, This is what you're to do to consecrate them. This is Aaron and his son. So they may serve me as priests. Take a young bull and two rams without defect. And from fine wheat flour without yeast, make bread and cakes mixed with oil and wafers spread with oil. Put them in a basket, present them in it, along with the bull and the two rams. All right, so these are the, this is the ingredients you're going to need. Two rams, a bull, and these, uh, these, these cakes that are going to be made. Now he's going to kind of walk through that process, what it looks like. Uh, bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. The tent of meeting is the tabernacle. Uh, take the anointing oil. Oh, excuse me. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Take the garments and dress Aaron with the tunic, the robe, the ephod, the ephod itself, and the breastpiece. Fasten the ephod on him by its skillfully woven waistband. Put the turban on his head and attach the sacred diadem to his turban. Take the anointing oil and anoint him by pouring it on his head. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics and put your headbands on them. And put headbands on them. Then tie sashes on Aaron and his sons. The priesthood is theirs by a lasting ordinance. In this way, you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. So, we're going to first bring them wash them, all right? That had 
uh, hygienic purposes, remember this is, they're in the desert, they're nomadic people, they're, they're animal husbandry people, they're dirty people and smelly people. And, and that's just part of it. So the first thing you're going to do is you're going to take these priests there and then you're going to wash them. You're going to clean them and they're going to be washed. They're going to be bathed. Then they're going to be dressed with the things that all of last chapter were about. Then once they're dressed, you're going to take this anointing oil, which you'll describe in the next chapter. Or not in the next chapter. In, yeah, in the next chapter. Uh, you're going to take this anointing oil and you're going to pour it on his head. And not just like pour it, but it would be like a symbolic, like you're going to let it flow down. And this is a, a ritual that is not known to us. We don't like oily hair. We have shampoos specifically designed to not make our hair not oily. But in the ancient world, oily hair was good because it was clean of lice and of things like that, whereas non-oily hair was not. It was usually dirty and matted and gross. So this is ancient <laughs> version of cleansing. Uh, the Psalms will talk about, there's a Psalm will talk about the, 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 the wonderful and the joy. It's like oil flowing down Aaron's hair and beard. And that's an image of this, of consecrating the high priest. Oil in the hair, good. And especially this particular oil. <laughs> so this is the anointing. This is, this is the priest is going to be anointed with the oil. That's interesting just in and of itself as an offhand remark. Anointing is the word Mashiach. It means it's translated in Greek as Christos and it's turned into English as Christ. So interestingly enough, this is one of the instances where this concept of the anointed one doesn't refer to the king of Israel. It actually refers to the high priest of Israel. And later it would refer to the king as well. And lo and behold, Jesus is going to be both high, king, high priest and king, the true Christos, the true Mashiach. Um, so then, uh, verse at the end of verse 9, the priesthood is theirs by a lasting ordinance. In this way you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. And literally in Hebrew that says you shall fill the hands of. Uh, to fill the hands of is what the concept of ordination means. To filling of the hands. Like, like you have your hands full. If you're ordained to something, that's what you are called to do. And, and that's what your hands become full of. That becomes your job, your occupation, your, your, your you know, focus. And so Aaron and his sons were to literally have their hands full with the Israelites for the rest of their history. And they did. Verse 10. Now, let's get back to these ingredients. Verse 10. Bring the bull to the front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on its head. Slaughter it in the Lord's presence at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Take some of the bull's blood and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And pour out the rest of it at the base of the altar. So the altar was like a big raised table with a grill on top, talked about a couple weeks ago. And on each corner it had these, these extended horns, literally. Uh, so you're going to anoint the horns of the altar and then pour the rest around the base of the blood of this bull. Uh, then take all of the fat from around the inner parts, covering the liver, both kidneys with the fat on them, and burn them on the altar. So the, the choice parts. The fat is good. Again, not, we're not used to hearing that in our culture. Fat is bad, fat busters, fat you know, burning, all that kind of, well, fat burning in the Old Testament was the grilling of, the cooking of the good parts. Like the best part was the fatty part. Okay, so again, put your mindset in that direction and you'll see whenever you see that in scripture, the fat part is the good part. Completely opposite from how our culture has used the word. Um, so you're gonna take the good part, the best parts, and for this offering, you're going to put them on the altar and they're going to be completely burned up. They're not going to be eaten. The best parts. It would be like the, the cooks in the back cooking up the 
absolute best porterhouse or filet mignon or whatever, whatever the highest priced steak on this menu at Ruth's Chris is, taking the best one, making it perfect, and then completely burning it up on the altar. Right? This is the this is God is saying, this is my portion. And it's an act of faith to do that, especially in times when things are lean, when things are not so great, when you're worried, oh, am I gonna be able to survive? And yet still being asked to give God this best part. That's an act of faith. And that can be really easily twisted into an act of heresy when you get in the prosperity gospel where you have people that can't survive and they're sending all their paychecks to these people that are just getting rich off them. But again, this is not sending money to somebody who's going to use it to buy a $60 million jet. This is giving it to God and burning it up on the altar. This is directly giving to God. So there's an act of worship in this, an act of faith, and all of this is teaching Israel something. However, it goes on to say, uh, but burn the bull's flesh and its hide and its offal, which is like all the nasty stuff you don't really normally use. Burn it all outside the camp. It is a sin offering. So this is the this is this going to be the sin offering part of this ordination. So take the best parts, burn them on the altar. Take all the leftover crap and take it outside, literally, and take it outside the camp and burn it up outside of the city. The New Testament will make reference to this in Jesus, him being crucified outside the city, him sharing the fate of the, the rejected part of the sacrifice, as well as him being the fulfillment of the good part of the sacrifice. So Hebrews, the book of Hebrews makes a lot of mention of this section, of this chapter, in its imagery, uh, how it describes Jesus himself. So then verse, 13, verse 15, so the bull, that's the sin offering. Verse 15, take one of the rams, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on its head, slaughter it, take the blood, and sprinkle it against the altar on all the sides. So now the bottom of the altar and the horns are consecrated with the bull's blood. Now the ram's blood is going to be splashed against the sides of the altar. Cut the ram into pieces and wash the inner parts and the legs, putting them with the head and the other pieces. Then burn the entire ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord pleasing aroma, an offering made to the Lord by fire. So sin offering, the first one, the bull, that actually constitutes, that, that takes on the sins of the people. Now the burnt offering, giving it up to the Lord. This is the symbolic meal of God. This is, this is basically preparing this nice lamb, or this ram in this case, preparing it and offering it to God for his portion, burning it up. And, and it says there would be a pleasing aroma, this the image of the smoke rising up to the heavens. Um, this is the part that's kind of dedicated to God <clears throat> more so than not just for sin, but this is for uh, communion. Then verse 19, take the other ram, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on its head. Slaughter it, take some of its blood, put it on the lobes of the right ears of Aaron and his sons, on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. Then sprinkle blood against the altar on all sides and take some of the blood on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on the sons and their garments. Then he and his sons and their garments will be consecrated. So now this final part is, and, and we'll go on to talk about this second in a minute, but um, take the blood of the lamb. Now the altar has been consecrated. Now the blood from this ram is going to actually consecrate the priests themselves. And there's, there's some cool symbolism in putting it on the right ear lobe, which is how you hear, hearing and obeying. The right thumb, which is how you act and live and do. And then the right big toe is where you walk, how you go. Um, so top, middle, and bottom, the priests are symbolically covered 
with the blood of this sacrifice. And now they can do the things that they're consecrated to do in the tabernacle without being consumed by the holiness of God. They have been brought into the realm of the holy through this, uh, this ceremony that's being done. And the oil now that they're going to be anointed with, some of the blood from the altar is going to be mixed in the oil. And that's going to be sprinkled on them, not just poured over Aaron's head, but now over all the priests. So now all of the priests are, are being drawn into this world of the tabernacle worship, this portable Mount Sinai. They're being, uh, being prepared. They're being seasoned, so to speak. They're being marinated into their role, which is going to be more than just doing these sacrifices every day. They're going, to have, they're going to be the ones who basically have their hands full with the people, teaching them the laws, taking it down and setting up the tabernacle, being the ones who go through and examine the people for things like health, things like legal issues, uh, judging cases, all of these things they're going to be doing now that they've been consecrated, now that they've been seasoned, like the sacrificial offerings have been as well. So they are living sacrifices. You think the New Testament came up with that on its own? <laughs> they are living sacrifices that are offering their services to God as their priestly worship. Paul's not just making this stuff up in the New Testament, right? He's steeped in this in the Old Testament. So, but we're not done with that ram yet because this last one, God's had his meal symbolically. The, the sin offering has been taken out of the camp and destroyed. Uh, atonement's been made through the bull. God's had his meal through the first ram. Now the second ram is for the people. Verse 22, take from this ram the fat, the fat tail, the fat around the inner parts. That's the good stuff, remember. Uh, the covering the liver, both kidneys with the fat on them and the right, excuse me, and the right thigh. This is the ram for the ordination. From the base, excuse me, from the basket of bread made without yeast, which is for the Lord, it's on the table in the middle of the tabernacle, the good bread. Take a loaf and a cake made with oil and a wafer. It's like a good pastry. Put all of these in the hands of Aaron and his sons. Like put them in the basket, give them to his sons, and wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. Then take them from the hands and burn them on the altar along with the burnt offering for a pleasing aroma to the Lord, an offering made to the Lord by fire. After you take the breast of the lamb for Aaron's ordination, wave it before the Lord as a wave offering, and it will be your share. <coughs> so now the third part of this is the wave offering, all right? Not doing the wave like at a ball game, and not waving like, you know, the wave offering was taking it all, giving it to God, and then taking it back. That's what the wave offering was, giving to God, taking it back, waving it this way. It was symbolic of God saying, I received your sacrifice, now you can have it back to eat in my presence. That's where they would get their meal from in this case, the wave offering. Um, 27, consecrate those parts of the ordination ram that belonged to Aaron and his sons, the breast that was waved and the thigh that was presented. This is always to be the regular share from the Israelites for Aaron and his sons. This is the contribution the Israelites were to make to the Lord from their fellowship offerings. That's how Aaron and the priesthood were supported. That's how they ate. That's how they got their food. The Levites didn't own land. Levites didn't graze their animals because they didn't own any land to graze them on. Levites, the priesthood, received their livelihood from the people they served. 
Again, Paul will make use of this in the New Testament when churches start saying, well, we don't need to pay our preachers. They can work just like the rest of us. And Paul will say they are working, but they're working on your behalf, so you need to support them. So this is where the whole idea of, of supporting the clergy, it's an Old Testament. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. So Aaron and his sons will get that part. What happens to the other part? That's what the people that bring it to get to eat. When you take your offering, when you take your sacrifice to the temple, to the tabernacle, you don't just do it, take it, and leave. You share a meal. This is God inviting his people into his presence to share a meal with him. That's the ultimate form of communion in the Old Testament. Communion means having commun communing with people, living life with people. You did not share meals with your enemies in the Old Testament. You did not share meals with people you didn't like. You shared meals with your friends, you shared meals with your family, you shared meals with the people that you loved, you shared meals with people you were making a covenant with. Sharing a meal was an act of worship. It doesn't, again, that, that doesn't register with our fast food culture, but sharing a meal was an act of worship in the Old Testament. And God was sharing a meal with Israel at this point, through this ordination. He was basically communicating to Israel, let's have a meal together. That's part of why, I mean, there's tradition and, and I, you know, taking communion, take the bread, you dip it in the wine. That's, that's how we do it at my church. There's nothing wrong with it. But it is so far down, far removed from what communion originally was, which was sharing a meal with each other in God's presence, Old Testament and New Testament. And so we've kind of lost that in our churches today. But reading through Exodus and studying and seeing it, what happened originally, it helps to give an understanding of that. That in the ancient Near East world where hospitality was everything and a shared meal was the ultimate sense of fellowship, this is what God is doing at the ordination of the priesthood. He's inviting Israel into his presence and sharing the meal. So the priests in Israel, the priests were kind of like the higher hands at a, at a, a big mansion. Like God's house was the big house. The priests were the ones who served the food to the people. The people were God's guests. So the, the owner of the house would have his guests in, and the people that were serving the guests, that's what the priest's role was. It was a servant leadership role. Right? So, so unlike other religions where the priests were the ruling class, in Israel the priests were to be the servant rulers, the serving of God's people on God's behalf in God's house. That's what all of this is communicating to Israel. It's all built into the language. And it would all require, this, this fellowship would require this, the uh, sacrificial lamb was slain. All right? Again, huge implications for New Testament theology. So, verse 29. Aaron's sacred garments will belong to his descendants so that they can be anointed and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest and comes to the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place is to wear them for seven days. So this is for bigger than... Aaron. This is for after Aaron's gone. This is going to continue. And the son, Aaron's son, in this case, it, it would have been Nadab or Abihu, his first two sons, but in Leviticus, we see what happens to them in chapter 10. They don't listen to any of this, and they end up dying. So his third son, Eliezer, is the one who inherits these garments that the last chapter has just talked about. And the, the new person, the new high priest, would wear those garments for seven days. 
letting everyone in the camp, everyone in the in the community see that this is the new high priest. And this is a, you know, and also the weight of these garments. Remember, these things are made of gold and stones and jewels, and, and these are not convenient. This is not active wear, right? This is this is display wear. So he would be for seven days loaded down with this new identity that he was taking on him, on himself of the people of Israel. So it was this transfer of power from the from first high priest to the next high priest when either Aaron died or when he got too old to walk around in the stuff, too old to fulfill his duty. There could be two high priests at the same time, kind of like there's two popes right now. There's the real one, and then there's the one who just stepped down and given it, which never happened or rarely happens in history, but it's kind of like that. So <clears throat> verse 31, take the ram for the ordination, the one that just been talked about, and cook the meat in a sacred place. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, Aaron and his sons are to eat the meat of the ram and the bread that is in the basket. They're to eat these offerings by which atonement was made for their ordination and consecration. But no one else may eat them because they are sacred. And if any of the meat of the ordination ram or bread is left over till morning, burn it up. It must not be eaten because it's sacred. This is the, this is the priestly meal that would kick off or begin the process by which all of the other worshipers could then come to the tabernacle and have their meals function. So this particular meal was between God and his priest. And so if any was left over, it had to be burned up. It was not, it's like when you're done with, you know, in Catholic Church, when we're done with the communion. You don't just pour the stuff down the sink. There's actually a special place where they pour the wine and they take the bread and they sometimes like take it and give it to a certain area where they bury it. I don't know. I'm not Catholic, but some of you might know. Regardless, there's all of these beliefs. It's not just, this isn't just random regular food that we are just thinking is symbolic. Like there's something to this particular ordination experience. And so they're to uphold it. Do for Aaron and his sons everything I've commanded you, taking seven days to ordain them. This happens over a seven-day period. Sacrifice a bull each day as a sin offering to make atonement. So it's not just a one-time bull. This is the daily thing. Purify the altar by making atonement for it and anoint it to consecrate it. For seven days, make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. Then the altar will be most holy. And whatever touches it, and this is where translations may not quite catch the nuance. It says whatever touches it will be holy. But later in scripture, we learn that holiness is not contagious. Sin is. Holiness isn't transferred this way. A better, possibly a better translation for this, it reads the same in Hebrew, would be whatever touches it must be holy. In other words, the altar has been consecrated, so whatever touches it must also be holy. And, and you can say that in English by saying whatever touches it will be holy. Like when I say, if I had a kid, you will be home at midnight. That's not a description, it's a command. So in this case, it's the same thing. Whatever touches it will be holy, right? In other words, don't play around on this altar. This is not just something that you can do however you want. Don't, don't uh, freestyle it, all right? This is very important that you follow what I'm saying to you, that God is showing how the priests are to be consecrated. Again, Leviticus 10 will show what happens when this is ignored. So last section, how are we doing on time? Perfect, got five minutes. This is what you're to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs a year old. Offer one in the morning, the other at night, at twilight. The first lamb, so this is, a, this is daily now. We, we, we're done with ordination. This is the everyday work of the priests. All right, every day, two lambs a year old. Offer one in the morning, the other at twilight. With the first lamb, offer a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a quarter of a hen of olive oil, uh, of oil from pressed olives, 
and a quarter of a hen of wine as a drink offering. Again, the, the, it's a meal. It's, you've got wine, you've got bread, you've got meat. You have a meal. That's what this, these sacrifices are symbolized. <clears throat> Sacrifice the other lamb at twilight with the same grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning. Pleasing aroma and offering made to the Lord by fire. For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will meet with you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites, and the place will be consecrated by my glory. At the end of Exodus, the glory of the Lord is going to fill the tabernacle. Glory is not just something you shout out during a gospel service. You know, glory. Oh, no, no. No. Glory is not something you get at a football game. When you win, we've got to go for the glory. No. Very specific. In the Bible, glory, kavod, it's the heaviness of God. It's the felt presence of God. It's when God is so thick you can feel him, even though you can't see him. It's his direct presence that actually weighs on everything else, that pushes everything else aside, that fills the temple or the tabernacle to the point where it's almost overwhelming. That's what God's promising. Basically, what's happening on top of Mount Sinai with Moses, God is promising that will happen in the Holy of Holies, in this holy place, as you follow my instructions, as you live according to my covenant. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and the sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among, who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. That's super important. The purpose of redemption was communion. The purpose of redemption was fellowship and relationship. It wasn't just to get them out of slavery because God doesn't like slavery. God doesn't like slavery, but he, he wants something much more than just this random freedom for his people. That's where uh, liberation theology just goes astray. Back in the 60s and 70s, they were, took all this and read it through the lens of God just wants people freed and liberated. No, God wants them freed from the wrong master in order to serve him, the true master. And, and the reason is he wants to be among them as they serve him. He wants to have fellowship with them. So he's, he's creating this entire system that's basically a, a cosmic replica of all of these things in creation and all of these concepts throughout the culture and society in order for them to get it in their heads and to see it in there with their eyes and to hear it with their ears and to smell it with their noses, to touch it, to taste it. All five senses are at work in the tabernacle worship so that God can shout to them this message, I want to be with you and I want you to be with me. And the thing that's blocking that is this thing called sin. And in the New Testament, we'll see his final dealing with that problem. See, right now, they're in a stage in history where day after day, the blood of bulls and goats have to be offered. Day after day, in the morning, in the evening, every single day, the monotony of it, the constant people seeing the sin problem and the barrier that that creates between them and getting ingrained in them, that there is a separation between our God and us. But it's not a separation of just he's way up there and we're way down here so if we can build a ladder or a tower we can get to him. That was Babel's mistake. Rather, it's the separation is in us. The separation is within our hearts. And so that has to be atoned. We have to be covered. That word is kapur in Hebrew, to cover. We have to be covered by the sacrifice of another before we can enter into the presence of our God. 
All of this is the theology of the tabernacle that's at play. All of this is what's being told to Moses on the mountain. And verse uh, 46, again, the end, they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am Yahweh their God. All of this is the purpose of the Exodus. And it looks back to the freedom that he gave them. It looks forward to the freedom and the, and the, the fellowship that he's promising them. And it's all a hint and a shadow of what will happen when God ultimately comes to dwell among them using that same verb in John chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelled among us, literally tabernacled among us. All of this points forward to Jesus. So soak it in. Get ready for next week because we're going to look at uh, the final little bits of this whole ordination process. And then things go off the rails after that with the whole golden capitals. But we're out of time, so have a great week. If you want some seconds, there's plenty here. There's some good desserts. And uh, we'll see you next week.